0: Welcome to a special mini-series of Innovate at Open, the podcast that explores open source through the lenses of distributed collaboration, collective invention, and technology creation. In this mini-series, we'll consider the question of, was open source inevitable, and what that tells us about software's past and future. I'm your host, Gordon Half, technology evangelist at Red Hat. Episode 1, Setting the Stage. In this podcast miniseries, we explore the alternative histories of open source software through the voices of many of the people who lived through its rise. The central question is, was open source inevitable? Not necessarily in the particulars, but in the macro. We'll let VP of Developer Relations at the Linux Foundation, Chris Anasic, sum up the case for inevitability
1: open source inherently I think was definitely in, inevitable because there really is no better way to collaborate and and build software and it's, it's not like open source it's not to say it's like a, a new thing and, and what, what, what I mean by here is like even before like open source was a thing Companies and organizations always found ways to collaborate in the in the early days of the share days. People people would share code and other all, all these things. Like academics, for have been forever doing this. You know, it, it's always better to share and collaborate with others to improve and innovate what what you're working on. And I think open source just really codified that for for software and built kind of guardrails on how to do it in many many different ways. And and and, and what's interesting is. Open source definitely targeted and started with kind of the, uh, let's call it the tech-savvy um, tech, tech savvy kind, of, kind of companies. And what we're seeing now is completely new industries embracing open source because they see that maybe their value of what they're working on and, and maintaining is not actually what the company is selling or making money.
0: But in this series... We consider the possibility of timelines in which open source software plays a much different or much reduced role. Given different events or individual actions, could open source have failed to become the engine for collaboration and innovation that it is today, as described by Chris? We're going to probe at the what-ifs. So this is perhaps more accurately about counterfactual history. Whatever you call it, though, is a look at points of divergence that can provide insight into where the past could have forked, which may in turn tell us something about what could have played out differently in the past as a way to help discern how similar patterns could play out in the future. If this isn't simply going to be a parlor game, though, the what-ifs have to be plausible against the broader background of history and technology. Some listeners may be familiar with Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, The Fate of Human Societies. Diamond argues that forces as fixed from a human perspective as mountain ranges and which plants and animals could be domesticated, preordained that civilization would first emerge on the hilly flanks of today's Middle East. And from that head start, the role of the West in human history was set. Others dispute that history was quite so inevitable, but it's one view. With respect to computer technology and open source software, it seems hard to argue that the integrated circuit, CMOS process scaling, and binary logic wouldn't have arisen. Other aspects of computer history are perhaps less certain, but the closer we get to major technological and economic departures, the harder it gets to entertain a plausible counterfactual. At the other extreme, you have the hero or the great man idea. The theory is primarily attributed to the Scots philosopher and essayist Thomas Carlyle, who gave a series of lectures on heroism in 1840, later published as On Heroes, Hero Worship, and the Heroic in History. Carlyle stated that, quote, The history of the world is but the biography of great men, unquote, reflecting his belief that heroes shape history through both their personal attributes and divine inspiration. We'll consider some what-ifs in this vein. There are some individuals who had outsized impacts on the history of open source. But you'll also hear from guests skeptical that the course of open source could have been significantly perturbed as easily as Linus Torvalds deciding that computer science wasn't his thing, and therefore never writing Linux. Let's now talk about some of the things that were inevitable, and therefore serve as the backdrop against which open source software has played out. These may seem perhaps more like simplifying assumptions, lest the scope of this series gets out of hand. However, For the most part, even if one can plausibly imagine differences in the details or the time frames, it's hard to imagine this overall backdrop taking a wholly different form. First is the great arcs of technology, perhaps most of all Moore's Law, which has underpinned so many of the technology advances in the computer industry and elsewhere over the past few decades. Moore's Law is as much a statement about economics as technology but it served as something of a self-fulfilling prophecy for the continual advancement of the chips powering computer systems. It was a major force in transforming the industry from vertical silos to a more horizontal structure in the mid-1990s. Here's former Intel CEO Andy Grove at a 1996 MIT lecture discussing the 10x force that came about because technology was now permitting what had previously been the function of many chips to fit on a single chip in a much smaller area, at much lower cost. So, what happens when one of
2: those forces becomes very, very much larger than the others? I want to call it an order of magnitude, since order of magnitude is not exactly <coughs> trade publication term. I called it a ten x force, a ten for ten force, ten times in, increase relative to the other forces. What happens when there's such one of the forces that determine the well-being of a business really grows out of bound and it's so big that it can distort the picture? And what tends to happen at times like that is that the very nature of the industry changes. Not the business, not the competitive well-being of the business alone, but the whole business model changes. And I'll give you uh, uh, an example that comes from right from our own in- industry on this one. And on the left of the diagram, you would have m- maybe the the business model of the computing industry as it used to be performed in the sixties, seventies, eighties, computers were sold as vertically integrated devices, proprietary platforms, proprietary operating systems, applications developed for that proprietary operating system, and the whole stack of things. Sold by a sales force that was unique to that enterprise. Then came the personal computer, which was in fact a genuine, almost quantitatively correctly describable 10x force in that its cost effectiveness relative to mainframes or minicomputers was about tenfold right from the inception on. And it was clearly a toy and it was clearly unreliable, and it did, couldn't do the, uh, the software that was pertinent to business processes, but it was so cost-effective that it represented a 10 x And in front of our eyes, in the course of the decade of the 80s, the entire structure of the industry changed from the vertical towers of computer products competing with each other to a completely horizontal industry in which microprocessors compete with other microprocessors, Operating systems compete with other microprocessor, other operating systems. Application software in a packaged form, like a bunch of commodity goods, uh, like a bunch of detergents, compete for that shelf space with other application software. And direct sales goes out as a means of distribution. Distribution becomes all indirect. In terms of your experience, it's very difficult to imagine how ridiculous the whole concept of selling computers through the telephone and through mail would have sounded to somebody who was steeped in the computer industry of the left side of the diagram.
0: Another key element that probably needed to be in place for open source to thrive was the internet. While collaboration of various types has taken place throughout human history, the internet, along with subsequently the web, were largely created to enable better data sharing. Here's Irving Wodalski-Berger, who led IBM's Internet Initiative in the 1990s. I strongly believe that if it hadn't
3: been for the Internet, I'm not sure if IBM or the world for that matter would have been as aggressive in embracing open source. Just to give you an example, in 1995 or so, IBM had developed its its own HTTP stack, which is the underlying uh, software supporting web servers, then we realized that Apache, which was an open source project developing an HTTP stack, uh, was actually quite a bit better. So we abandoned our own proprietary HTTP stack and joined the Apache community. And over the years, Apache became a fundamental part of one of IBM's most successful internet products, WebSphere, the web application server. And there were a number of other internet-based offerings that IBM was developing with the open source community. Remember, the internet started as a research project to allow researchers in government labs, in universities, and even in industry labs to communicate with each other and to exchange information with each other. And the whole notion of sharing information and communicating you know, was really quite common in the research community. The research community has always been quite open. People publish papers that everybody can read. Of course, they get patents and so on. And so the Internet came out of the research community, was developed within that community for a couple of decades, and then... And don't forget, the World Wide Web came out of the same research community developed by Tim Berners-Lee when he was at, the, at CERN, the European High Energy Physics Lab, to help physicists share information with each other. And so I think that given how valuable Linux email, the web was seen to be for the research community, I think it was inevitable that it would jump over and be embraced by the commercial world. I I think so.
0: As Irving suggests, loss of sharing went on in research communities. But was that necessarily inevitable? It's hard to see how not. With respect to software specifically, the sharing of human-readable source code was widespread in the early days of computing. A lot of computer development took place at universities and in corporate research departments, like AT&T Bell Labs, where UNIX was created. They had long established traditions of openness and collaboration, with the result that even when code wasn't formally placed into the public domain, it was widely shared. My Red Hat colleague... Harish Play, who is the head of community architecture and leadership in our Singapore office, argues that sharing is the default. It's not so much
4: inevitable, it was the default at the start. It became proprietary because of business constraints of a very large, giant company that felt threatened because they were giving away their software for their mainframes. And when a competitive mainframe hardware uh, was made available... That same software ran on that machine, and so they decided, "Oops, this is not good. We need to close it up." And so that became a challenge. So, but it was default. So, and, and then the trajectory of it is, you know, went proprietary to a large extent. But then again, because of the creative juices of people, I well, people don't write code because I want I'm going to be paid for it. I mean, it's it's a so therefore, it is an obvious thing to me. It was an obvious thing. So, in the in the, in the arc of you know, you look at the the, the way software has over the if I if I to tangentially draw uh, an arc from 1950, for example, to 2050, the proprietary software portion of it would be a small glitch. The rest of it would just continue to be an open source thing or free software for that matter. I prefer free software than open source because I think it, it adds to the additional value of the uh, the, the conversation. So. Yeah, it was an in, it's not so much so much in, inevitable it was there from the beginning. It was a a sidetrack that we went it was a fork of the of the free software idea to become proprietary and then now we are back to corrected that fork and now we're back to being normal. So we have we have been normalized. So we have one.
0: Another colleague, Jan Wildeboer, describes how sharing software just came along naturally in Europe in many European
5: countries. So I live in Germany, I'm born Dutch. Uh, we have kind of a pragmatic approach to uh, what to do with software. So sharing software and, and working together on this stuff, not only in the academic field, uh, but also in the business field, is more or less quite natural. So this hardcore competitive business, of course, also exists, but there was a deep feeling of, of solidarity and sharing that it would simply help. Uh, Then we had the universities who were quite well connected, so there was a breeding ground uh, for this to evolve. And I remember very well when when the whole Linux story started, I was studying computer science at the university in Paderborn, and uh, we were sitting in in front of uh, Sun uh, uh, Spark stations where we could download the first web browsers, and we started downloading source code for kernels and all that kind of stuff. And... It was kind of a, a feeling like, yeah, this, you know, this is the way we should do it. And then we had a thing uh, that was extremely helpful. I think it was a group of six students in in Brussels who decided in the year 2000, you know what, uh, all of these these open source and free software people, why not get them together? So they asked the professor at their university in Brussels, uh, hey, can we have a few rooms and you know just invite some people? And the professor was like, yeah, sure, why not? This is uh, now called FOSDEM. And it attracts around about 7,000 developers now. It's going in its 20th year. And uh, fortunately, this year it could still happen. It was be- uh, before the coronavirus uh, broke out. That also created a kind of a attraction of people to-, to join, talk, and do stuff. So from my perspective, being introduced to it when I was quite young, it didn't feel that special. It was like, yeah, of course, this is how we do software. And what has grown from that, what you can see in the political field is, is of course, also heavily influenced by stuff like the European Union, where we're always looking for projects to share across Europe. Um, And in that sense, open source and free software also made a lot of sense. So very early on, a lot of people in the political field saw the potential and maybe didn't really understand the philosophy and the ultimate goals that many people had. But. The practical use of sharing code in in, in a productive way was obvious to a lot of people, so that's why it was growing, and is growing until today.
0: In the second half of this episode, let's take a little time to briefly delve into the history of open source. This may be old hat to some of you, but we want to offer a quick primer for everyone so as to have some context for the what-ifs we're going to dive into in upcoming episodes. Early on, a lot of computer development took place at universities and corporate research departments like AT&T Bell Labs. As we heard from Harish Pillay, they had long established traditions of openness and collaboration, although some of that would admittedly later break down. Indeed, as we'll get into later, it wasn't even clear early on if software was even protected intellectual property, and users often had to write or modify software they needed. For example, the first operating system for the IBM 704 computer was written in the mid-1950s by programmers at General Motors and North American Aviation. In addition to the Internet, which was almost certainly a critical catalyst and enabler for what we now call open source... Another important technology thread was the aforementioned Unix. It came out Bell Labs and allowed users to quote-unquote port it to different types of computers. Of course, to make the needed modifications, you needed the source code, the text file with the original programmer's instructions to the computer, which AT&T was willing to supply. AT&T was also very open at the time to shipping source code for another reason, After the sixth edition of Unix was released in 1975, AT&T began licensing Unix to universities and commercial firms, as well as the United States government. But licenses did not include any support or bug fixes, because to do so would have been pursuing software as a business which AT&T did not believe that it had the right to do under the terms of the agreement by which it operated as a regulated telephone service monopoly, whereas providing a source code let licensees make their own fixes and port Unix to new systems. However, in 1982, AT&T entered into a consent degree with the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, providing for the spin off of the regional Bell operating companies. Among other things, the decree freed AT&T to enter the computer industry. And shortly thereafter, AT&T began development of a commercial version of Unix. This would lead, over the course of about the next decade, to the messy so-called Unix wars, as AT&T Unix licensees developed and shipped proprietary Unix versions that were all incompatible with each other to greater or lesser degrees, Let's just say it was an extremely complicated and multi-threaded history, and leave it at that. Part of the complicated history took place at the Computer Systems Research Group at UCAL Berkeley, one of AT&T's educational licensees. Over time, it modified and added features to its licensed version of Unix, and in 1978 began shipping those add-ons as BSD, Berkeley Software Distribution. Over time, it adds significant features, including the outright re-architecting and rewriting of many key subsystems, and the addition of many wholly new components. As a result of its extensive changes and improvements, BSD was increasingly seen as an entirely new, even better, strain of Unix. Many AT&T licensees would end up incorporating significant amounts of BSD code into their own Unix versions. Berkeley continued developing BSD to incrementally replace most of the standard Unix utilities that were still under AT&T licenses. This eventually culminated in the June 1991 of NET2, a nearly complete operating system that was ostensibly freely redistributable under what we now call a permissive license, which places minimal constraints on the subsequent use and redistribution of the code. AT&T promptly into a legal fight over this version of Unix, which it mostly lost in a 1994 settlement. Shortly thereafter, BSD development at Berkeley ended, but a number of variants maintained by others spun out. In the context of open source, both the legal uncertainties associated with the AT&T and Berkeley legal fight and the subsequent fragmentation of BSD loom large. Meanwhile. On the other side of the country, MIT's AI lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts, another drama was playing out. AI was commercializing, especially in the form of machines designed to efficiently run LISP, the programming workhorse of AI research. One member of the AI lab, Richard Stallman, liked the associated splintering of the lab community not one bit. He found other aspects of increasingly proprietary software equally unpleasant. In a widely told story about Stallman's genesis as a free software advocate, he was refused access to the source code for the software of a newly installed laser printer, the Xerox 9700, which kept him from modifying the software to send him notifications as he had done with the lab's previous laser printer. Stallman responded by starting to write an operating system based on the Unix model which is to say that it was to consist of modular components like utilities and the C C-language compiler that was needed to build a working system. The project began in 1984. Although he never completed the operating system kernel, the program at the core that controls everything else in the system, he did complete many other components. These included... Critically, the parts needed to build a functioning operating system from source code and to perform fundamental system tasks from the command line. However, equally important from the perspective of open source's origins was the GNU, that's G-N-U, a recursive acronym for GNUs, not Unix, manifesto that followed in 1985, the free software definition in 1986, and the GNU Public License, the GPL, in 1989, which formalized principles for preventing software distributors from restricting the freedoms that define free software. The license stipulated that if you pass a program on, whether by selling it or otherwise, you have to provide the source code as well, whether or not you make any changes. This so-called copy-left approach, contrasted with more permissive licenses like Berkeley's, and reflected Stallman's belief in the free sharing of software while giving enhancements back to the commons. Also, at roughly the same time, 1991 to be precise, a Finnish university student by the name of Linus Torvalds posted in a Usenet news group that he was starting to work on a free operating system in the Unix mold as a hobby. This OS would come to be called Linux and be licensed under the GPL. It made use of Stallman's GNU components, including a C compiler, which was necessary to build the system. For a kernel, he didn't start from scratch, though. Rather, he worked on and was inspired by Minix, a version of Unix initially created by Andrew Tenenbaum, licensed only for educational purposes at the time. Linux is a member of the Unix-like family of operating systems. The distinction between Unix and Unix-like is complicated, unclear, and frankly, not very interesting. Hence, all these threads tie together in a highly interrelated way. That's what makes unraveling the inevitability, or not, of open source, a term coined by Christine Peterson in 1998, such a fascinating puzzle. By the close of the 1990s, units in open source more generally were not yet the dominant force and influence that they are today. But the market share of Linux was already eclipsing Unix on commodity XA6 servers. It was running some of the largest supercomputers in the world on the top 500 list. It was the basis for many of the infrastructure products, like so-called server appliances sold during the dot-com boom. And even just by the year 2000, it had attracted thousands of developers from all over the world. The open-source model was working, both for users and developers. The following two decades made it a key part of the fabric of the software world. Not everywhere, but even historical opponents began to participate in open-source projects, some more than others, some grudgingly, some enthusiastically. Today, it underpins much of computing and heavily influences how much of software development happens. But it have to happen this way? In the next three episodes of this series, we'll look at six possible points of departure. You've heard how wrapped around each other the histories of Unix and open source are. Could events in the 1970s or 1980s have sent that Unix history off in a different direction? How important were the ideological underpinnings that Richard Stallman and the Free Software Foundation brought to what would later be called open-source software? Open-source is, in important ways, a creature of the legal system within it exists. What differences can we reasonably imagine? Today, open-source pervades ever-broader categories of software, but what if that Finnish university student hadn't written Linux? Would we have had to invent it anyway, or would the timeline have diverged? For a time, many viewed Microsoft's history in the OS wars and elsewhere as an inevitability. Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer called Linux a cancer. Could Microsoft have played a different game, or could Microsoft have otherwise won in a different timeline? Finally... Was open source preordained to be commercially interesting? What if IBM hadn't embraced Linux as strategic in 2000, along with other factors such as enterprise Linux distributions that led to Linux and open source commercialization generally? This concludes the first episode of Was Open Source Inevitable? Check out the next episodes as a wide range of guests tackle the counterfactuals. Did open source need to develop the way it did, and what does that mean for the future? Thank you for listening to this episode of Innovate at Open. For future episodes, subscribe to Innovate at Open on your favorite podcast app. You can also go bitmason.blogspot.com for show notes, blogs, and a full archive of episodes and more. Thank you for listening. This is Gordon Half, Technology Evangelist at Red Hat.